You're listening to Three Makes Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Not everyone finds the person that they want to have a family with at a super young age. And so our next guest is someone who, like many of you, found the love that they wanted to have the family with at age 35. And so at that age, she ran into difficulty in getting pregnant. And here's her story. Hi, I'm Keely. Um, I live in East London in the UK. Um, and I've Keely. been having a Hey, it's so great to have you. (laughs) It's really lovely to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And, you know, it's, I have to say, being able to speak to, to guests from the UK is such, it's so, it's so nice for me because I really uh, get to understand, you know, differences and, and the way um, infertility is, is being, you know, addressed in different parts of the world. And so, it's so great to have you. And I the wonders love- of technology. I know it really is. <laughs> and I, I just, it's like our world is getting smaller. And I just, I was really struck by your story that, you know, when you shared that you didn't find the person that you wanted to settle down in with and have a family with until a little bit later in life. Can you tell me just a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, I think these days as well, or I, I think I certainly was, I, I didn't really, I always wanted to meet someone and settle down and have a family at some point, but I also had a really lovely, fabulous career. And I just didn't think about it in that way, in terms of it was like an imperative because something might go wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I had various relationships in my 20s and and was kind of very single at 33, thinking, okay, well, it's not the end of the world. Um, But again, hadn't really, you know, fertility hadn't really entered into my head. I mean, I had some thoughts about it as to like, oh, should I freeze my eggs? And I might not meet anyone, you know, having all these conversations with your, like your mum saying, well, I don't want to settle down with just anyone. I want to find the person that I really want to be with. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah. And we, I mean, my husband and I have actually known each other since we were at school. Um, but didn't actually get together until 15, 16, 17 years later. Yeah. So were you, um, not, you know, some women do start to worry around their thirties. They start to get that pressure, the feeling their peers are getting married, but you weren't feeling that. And, and that's nice because, you know, it's unfortunate that we do feel that pressure as women. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I can't lie and say that it wasn't aware but most of my friends got married in their 30s um maybe early 30s um but then you know a couple of my friends got married in their mid-20s and have you know 15 16 year old children now um Mm -hmm. but I just always felt that there are always moments where you think oh I'm being a bit left behind and I want to get married or I want to have a wedding or you know but Mm -hmm. I think I had so I had you know I had was very lucky I had a very full rich life in terms Mm -hmm. of you know I had my job and my friends and London and going out and having a good time and you know so I just didn't 
yeah, yeah it, it kind of didn't feel like there was something really missing, I guess. Is the and that's thing. what I love about your story is that there's this perception that you, you don't have a full life if you're not following the script, the norm that everybody is, and it's not true at all. And so I love that about your story that you, you did, you were having this wonderful, rich, full life and, and you know, it, the timing was different for you. And I think that's such an inspiration for other women out there and that we'll talk to it later in the podcast mm -hmm. about what women can do that are also experiencing that full, rich life uh, in their 30s and in their late 20s. And if there's ways that they can be proactive about their fertility. Yeah. We'll get into that later, but I want to hear more yeah. about you first. So <laughs> tell me about what happened then. You got, you found the, you reconnected with, with your husband and got married yeah. and uh, did you want to start a family right away? Yeah, I think we were very, I mean, we wanted to because we I think we talked about it on our first date, actually, just, you know, oh, yeah, I'd like to have kids. Would you like to have kids? Yeah, how many would you like? You know, naive conversations that you have. Um, and so, and I think because, you know, I was 35 when we got married. So in the back of my mind, I was aware that we had to start thinking about it and kind of, as we say in England, cracking on with it because that age was not on my side. Um, but again, you just naively think that, well, that will be fine. You know, we'll get pregnant like in the year, within the year. And then, you know, everything that you think will naturally just run its course. And then after about six months of trying, nothing really, well, nothing had happened. And, and I just sort of said, we may as well go to the GP and um, our local doctor and just, and just ask some questions and get checked out because you never know. And I hadn't had many friends who had been through IVF or any sort of fertility treatment, really. Um, a couple of friends who had, you know, had some Clomid or, you know, but it had all then happened very quickly for them and with the particular circumstances surrounding it. So, so we went to the GP. And I'm glad you did that. I'm glad you went within six months. Um, there is a recommendation that couples wait a year that it, infertility isn't a diagnosis until you've mm. gone a year of trying naturally and you haven't become pregnant. But when you're in your, when you're 35, yeah. Yeah. In your thirties, it's different and it's different. It's better to go yeah. sooner. It's definitely better. Absolutely. To go sooner. Definitely best to go sooner. And I said that to any of my younger friends, <laughs> like Absolutely. just, mm -hmm. you know, rather be in control of the information and and know what you're dealing with and kind of blindly just go on and on and on and, and not really know what's going on. Um, so we went and we had all the basic tests um, with the NHS, which is our state national health service here. Um, and nothing really came back. Like um, my husband's sperm was fine. Um, I mean, my AMH wasn't, you know, off the clock, like it wasn't amazing, but it was acceptable that they think you could get pregnant they didn't say IVF was definitely the way that you should go but because of my age they were saying we can't find anything wrong so maybe you should consider it um so we kind of then just dived straight in I think we were both of the opinion that you know this this hadn't happened and if we want it to happen then we need to seriously consider it and um we actually ended up you know we're quite lucky in the uk and i know it's very different in the us with in mm -hmm. terms of insurance and how fertility treatment costs etc but mm -hmm. um 
here in the UK, I mean, it's a bit of a lottery, but depending on where you live, you can get it on the NHS. Mm -hmm. um, we had that option, but the wait list on when, how long that treatment would get take until we even got our first consultation appointment mm -hmm. was almost like a year. Um, mm -hmm. So I just said, we, we were very fortunate and in a position where we could pay for it privately. And okay. mm -hmm. I just said, let's keep in the system, but let's just get on with it. And then yes, yes. what a dilemma. See to what be. happens. Yeah, what a dilemma. It's really hard. I mean, we could wow. have got like th three rounds, three full rounds of treatment on the NHS. And by the time I would have had the treatment, I would have been 37, 38. Mm. Um, and I just thought at that point, I don't know what stage we're going to be at. So let's just get on. And it actually materialized that I'd had three rounds by the time our first NHS appointment would have come around. So, and think about um, those three rounds that in, when we're talking about, uh, fertility declines rapidly for many totally. women after the age of 35. So you, what, a a window of time that was so crucial for you yeah. and women that couldn't afford might miss that window altogether. Com completely. It's so unfair. Eggs. Yeah. It's so unfair. I mean, it's unfair anyway here that some people qualify and some people don't is unfair as it is, but that you, because it's just such an under-resourced side of our health system that mm -hmm. you don't know what those waiting times are going to be like. So, so we, mm. we, we dove straight into the wonders of private fertility treatment. Okay. Um, yeah, and then we started on that road, really, mm -hmm. which yeah. was, um, so yeah, we had, uh, we had eight rounds of IVF altogether. Um, oh, yeah, which was and a lot, a lot, a yes. lot yeah. Um, and within that, we had six transfers, I also fell pregnant naturally and had a miscarriage. Um, and half of that I was still working and then half of it I wasn't. So there was a lot of variables that were kind of in the mix at three different clinics. Um, mm. So it's been, yeah, for the last six years. So it's been uh, interesting, <laughs> shall yes, we say. Yes, I, I would say so. So when you said you fell pregnant naturally mm -hmm. there were you were doing a lot of IVFs and your body must have been going through just you know almost almost always in a state of a hormonal influx and changes yeah I think so and I yeah I don't know how like even my IVF doctors just were like shocked and didn't didn't really know how that had happened um and how far along did you get uh, eight and a half weeks. Oh, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. Although really from the moment we found out, we knew it was, may not be viable pregnancy because, um, we kept, so that was between our third and fourth rounds. We were basically waiting to do our fourth round. And I was just like, I'm a bit late and I'm never late. Like I'm really strictly clockwork in terms of my cycle. And, and I just thought, Hmm. It's just really unusual. Maybe it's the dr the drugs from the last round, or you know, you just don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and I took a test, but my my HCG was so high that they then thought it was an ectopic pregnancy. Mm. Um, so then I had a whole weekend of deciding whether I should go to A and E or not, even though I didn't have any symptoms of an ectopic pregnancy. Mm. Um, and 
What is yeah, AME? Event, uh, so accident and emergency. So okay. the sort of, I don't know what the equivalent is. in the Emergency room. Um, emergency room, yeah. yeah. Um, so then I got uh, referred to the early pregnancy unit of our hospital where they scan uh, early pregnancies or pregnancies with complications. Um, and then it became a pregnancy of unknown location. Um, and eventually they did see a sack, but there was nothing in it. And they just said, mm -hmm. we can wait a couple of weeks, but the likelihood is that it's not going to be viable. And it wasn't. Um, so we kind of knew all along that it, it was probably a kind of a freak accident. And actually, and it, I think because of that, and, and not just because of it then resulted in miscarriage, but I think along the way, I think then I, I did become much more aware of, you know, the quality of my eggs and, and, and consequently when I look back now, I kind of see that as an indicator of, well, that probably was the reason, okay. um, mm -hmm. eventually. And even though you were never given an official reason? No, never. No, but we were always given unexplained infertility. And then as I say, my, my AMH was always on the low side. So mm -hmm. during stimulation, I never, you know, I never got probably more than eight eggs a cycle, if that. Um, some cycles I only got three or four. Mm -hmm. um, so it was always low numbers, but we always fertilized and we never had any problem with that. And always really good numbers, you know, out of four, either all four fertilized or three fertilized. Mm -hmm. So it kind of gave you that sense of, oh, something must be right because... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not just dying away. I wanted to speak to unexplained infertility, that mm -hmm. diag that diagnosis, even though it's not a diagnosis because there's yeah. they can't explain it. So there's actually no diagnosis. But yeah. I want to speak to that because that is uh, one of the most difficult types uh, to deal with. Um, yeah. Unexplained means that you don't have a reason. And when I don't know, for some reason, we just need to understand why we need that what's the reason yeah. it gives us a sense of closure and when you don't have that it can make it feel like it's not quite ever closed and so uh, you know it's good that you have found that pregnancy that was probably really hard for you to go through but that you found that that gave you at least some information that maybe maybe can give you a little bit of closure yeah and i think really i think i just thought in the end why did they not say in the first place the likelihood that you're not getting pregnant is because you have a really low AMH like that because that is a very clear indicator of I mean it's not impossible but obviously it just comes with its own and I just because I just don't believe that there is a totally unexplained infertility category I just you know and I know that end up there's I've spoken to a lot of people where they've been told that initially and then actually it materializes that there might be a male factor problem or that there might be an underlying condition with the woman, you know, but until I think it's such an initial diagnosis that is often given that until people then start to question and investigate and you actually end up having to go through the process, you end up kind of getting your own answers, if you know what I mean. But actually that initial thing, I just kept saying, I just want something wrong with me. Like I just said so that I can try and fix it because mm -hmm then it's, you feel like you're being proactive and you're being like, okay, we can get through this. And I think that infertility, the treatment for infertility is the process of deducement. Um, yeah. 
and so I believe that there is some that does make sense that it, at first it would be unexplained because you don't yeah. know. And yeah. then as you do more, you go through the process, then the doctors are able to deduce what and eliminate things that, that aren't the problem. And so that's kind of, it's, it's, it is quite a bit of detective work. There's still yeah. so much that even the endocrinologist don't fully understand about fertility. So, um, so that there is there, you can go through all of years of that process and still end up with, with, um, unexplained, but for the most part, yeah, it's for you, for your age and, and the AMH numbers that did give you definitely more of a reason than somebody I, I have spoken with younger clients who have a fine AMH and they still aren't able to figure it out. And so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think yeah, the the thing with it comes as well is because it is I mean it is a truly miraculous science like it it really is when it yes. works um but I think because of that people associate that there just always must be an answer well why why don't why isn't there why can't you give me a reason or why do you know what I mean whereas actually mm-hmm. we know that it is so complicated and there's so many variances mm-hmm. even in every single person but I think sometimes that's quite hard for people to accept because it is. It is. You just want there's an answer to everything these days, so there must mm-hmm. be an answer, you know. But. And we and we need answers as just as it's just kind of human nature. I know that yeah. there's been a lot of talk about how infertility has ambiguous loss, and a lot of life does. You know that we have mm. this ambiguous loss where we don't have an answer and we don't really know, and that can be just really hard to reconcile in our minds. And so, yeah, especially when you get the unexplained is that yeah. you don't have that, you don't have that sense of closure. So anyway, yeah. So for you, you moved on to a different type of treatment. Yeah. So we, we did six transfers during our eight rounds. And then our last two rounds were actually, um, PGFs testing rounds. Okay. Um, and with the view that if one of those came back normal, then we would transfer it. But actually the both times that we did that, they came back abnormal. Um, and for us, that was kind of the last stage of going through the process with my own eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and really from about round four, the, our consultants, and then we got a different opinion and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, said, we'll keep doing this as long as you want to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. But the likelihood is, is that egg donation will be your best chance of having a family. Mm-hmm. So they'd kind of planted the seed. But at that point, we weren't quite ready to move on. So we felt like we'll do another couple of rounds and we'll do the PGS. And, and then we feel, like, we feel like we've come to the end of our, you know, we feel like we've done everything that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at that point, we'd be ready to move on. And so that's what we did. Um, so we had our last PGS testing round in, um, March of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and we've just had our first egg donor transfer, like two and a half weeks ago, three two, weeks ago. Okay. Wait, so, are you, are you in the two week wait? Or uh, you... no, we are pregnant. Okay. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah. And the, so you chose the donor. When did you start the, so we, that process? Yeah, so we um, so said we had our last PGS round in March, and then we started looking into uh, egg donation properly. I mean, I had done some work before then, just kind of to start the process, um, and we looked at kind of 
I mean, the, the kind of defi defining factors for us were what sort of donor are we looking for? And what do we want to know? And what do we not want to know? And, and all of those sorts of things. And therefore it started to, to narrow down where we would potentially go for treatment um, and what felt comfortable with us. And I know this can be a very contentious issue, <laughs> um, but for us, and it was a really, it's our personal choice. We decided to go for an anonymous donor, um, but one where we would find out a lot of information about that donor without still knowing her. Um, okay. So it's, it's kind of how, so we went to Russia, Okay. Um, and the and the two the two countries that ended up kind of being able to provide what we potentially wanted were the states and Russia, okay. um, and mm -hmm. yeah. So that's what we decided to do. Yeah. So you could have some identifying, or just details, not identifying details, but just some uh, physical traits and descriptions, and maybe some medical history. Yeah, I mean, actually, like a lot of information. So we also could see childhood pictures of okay. our donor mm -hmm. um, up to the age of 12. Okay. Um, uh, we had all the physical characteristics of seeing skin type and type of hair. Then we had all their genetic history. We had their parents' history. Um, the clinic that I, I used in St. Petersburg also give you information that all the donors are already mothers. Okay. Um, so mm -hmm. they already have children of their own. So you get details about their children, you know, what color eyes they've got and how old they are. And, and then they give them a list of questions to kind of try and get a sense of their personality and, um, you know, what they're into, uh, mm -hmm. you know, are they creative? Are they into sport? Are they, you know, certain questions, um, some of which you think, oh, that's great. And some of you think, Oh, I don't really know why I needed to know that, but sure, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, like, like what? <laughs> what did they say? Uh, I mean, my donor has a pet chihuahua called Mark, which, oh. you know, yeah. that's lovely. But I mean, yeah. I mean, it made me laugh because I was like, cool, okay, she likes dogs. Um, and it, exactly. And you know, it's amazing. I've, I've noticed over the years that families that either are adopting or uh, picking a donor, Sometimes those small details will be what they connect with. And so you yeah. never know. You never know. Like, no, exactly. You never yeah. know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And actually what I, what I got from that, I just got a really nice sense of her. Mm -hmm. and, and the photos, I have to say, really helped me. And I know that's not for everybody, um, unless it's a known donor, obviously. Um, but she just sort of, you know, obviously she's not me, but she was really smiley and people say I'm a very smiley person and that was something that the clinic said as well um, mm -hmm. and yeah so we just felt really confident and the way that it worked was they, they have a database and and um, so my husband and I went through it separately um, and kind of made a short list of, of, of donors that we potentially thought could work and then we cross-referenced um, and we came up with, I think it was four that matched both, uh, both of us. Mm -hmm. um, and then we asked the clinic separately without knowing our choices, who they would match us with. Um, and they sent through three and one of them out of all of them matched and that's who we went with. Okay. So. Yeah. And do they have 
a way for you to contact the donor at 18 at, when your child turns 18 if you'd like to no uh no it's it is totally anonymous um and they i mean they have very close relationships with their donors so i think there would you know there could be a possibility that it could be a situation that was broached with the donor um but that that's the their rule in terms of anonymity so um and i you know i i do understand the uh the debate surrounding it i just know that the way that we intend hopefully to bring up um our child or children um is going to be so intrinsic and the narrative of that story is that they're not going to be in the dark about anything and although they might not know exactly who that person is you know like in 18 years time who knows where this you know the world of information is mm -hmm. going to change and right. and i think that's just a natural evolution of, of of society and 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 have it so i'm not you know we didn't do it anonymously because we never want them to find out who their donor is okay it's just that yeah. we wanted to know that detail about a donor without the knowing who they are at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, sure. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that so much can change. And, you know, a lot of times families need that time early in their, in the baby years and the pregnancy years to, to have to themselves where they can feel that they're growing their family, um, you know, and just experiencing that just as themselves, you know, as he, as their nuclear family. And then over time, as they become more comfortable as a family and in their role as a parent, they don't feel so much fear around this other person that, that helped create their child. They don't feel so much fear around that and, and so much concern about connecting with that person because they realize that they're, they're not a threat. Usually they're not, I mean, in general, yeah, they're yeah. Really not a threat to you as a parent. And so you can't you can't replace that role as a parent by stepping in later in life. It's really difficult to to make up for that time that um, you're you're spending with your baby and your child as they grow each and every day, bonding and attaching to them. Yeah, and I think it's a really good way of putting it, actually. And I hadn't kind of, if I'm honest, thought about it in that way. And it it, it isn't a fear of knowing someone else is there. It's just I just and people again may react to this as it's just not relevant in terms of you know I I will be that child's mother and for me for me it really is that it's a collection of cells that someone has given me in order to be able to grow the person that hopefully I'll be an amazing parent to so it really feels for me like it's in the future, if, if the child wants to meet that person, I'll do everything I can to make that happen. But I just don't, yeah, I, personally at this point, I just, I don't feel like it, it's relevant. Whether that's right or wrong, mm -hmm. that's kind of how I feel. And, and, you know, and just to, to play devil's advocate, the, and the child, it becomes relevant to the child because many children at least, not all, but because of their, it is the genetic makeup does make us impart who we are. You know, it's a part yeah, of- Yeah, of course. And so the, then there's those missing kind of pieces for a child, not so critical, of course, in the baby years and the childhood, early childhood years, because those years are really focused on 
growing, growing your brain, growing your body, you know, developing cognitively, that's the focus. But when we get into adolescence, then we really begin to focus on the next stage of development. That is identity. Of course. And who are yeah, we? Yeah, of course. And I don't, I don't mean relevant in a throwaway manner. I mean, just initially, I don't think it's relevant. And exactly as you say, I think that through time and through getting to know who that little person is, you then ascertain how then to navigate that, I'm sure, in terms of, you know, what you then nurture out of that particular, because it may well be, you know, that there's a certain characteristic or trait of that child that's like, well, it didn't come from you and it didn't come from me, so it must come from some, you know, it must come from the other person. So absolutely over time, it's totally relevant. But I feel like initially that, you know, exactly as you say, that kind of bonding and that initial phase of, of of being a parent I feel like it's but of course I totally understand what you mean in terms of ultimately of course it is and yeah you will hopefully nurture that in every way that we can yeah yeah absolutely and there's going to be so many more opportunities on the podcast to talk about anonymity and open or closed or unknown or known and all the different words that are used for donation, um, different types of donation. And so there'll be lots of uh, unique perspectives and ways that we can, can further expand upon that. So we'll definitely, you know, I know more guests will be on the show that have varying opinions too. So, so it'll be just interesting. I like to keep talking yeah. about it because I think when we talk yeah. about it in a respectful way with each other that we can really learn. And, um, and then that's, that's what this podcast is really all about. So, but I do want to move on from that because yes. there's so much more to talk about. With you. <laughs> so let's move on. And, um, and, t- and I really am curious, I want to circle back to mm-hmm. advocating for young, younger women to, you know, in terms of preserve, preserving their fertility. And yeah. I also want to talk about your, um, the fact that, you know, kind of using a donor and the, the part that you talked about with selecting and uh, you know, how difficult was that on you? You sound very happy with how it, it turned out and, and who you mm. ended up with. I've had stories I've heard from many people that where they've become very attached to their donor and then it falls through and yeah. they really grieve the loss of that. There's going to be a story on the podcast about a woman who was pregnant through a donor and lost the baby and how yeah. she really grieves that baby and, 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 you know, wants to reconnect maybe with the donor just to, to honor her, the baby's memory. So mm. it's, it's just so, it's so much more complex than people realize when par- parents to be are choosing a donor. How was that process for you? Um, I think, I mean, it wasn't easy and it wasn't hard, if that makes sense. Like I, I felt, I felt like I, I had come to terms with, and you know, look, there are still days where I go, oh my God, did we choose the right person? <laughs> or I think it's just, na- it's just natural human instinct. It's just, you know, you're, everyone's always constantly questioning themselves about decisions and did I do the right thing or did I do the wrong thing? Or, um, But I, of course, I was really sad about the fact that I was, my children were not going to be genetically mine. I mean, that was big, but mm-hmm. I think it was just, and also because my family have really strong genetics, like my niece and nephew could be my kids. Okay. <laughs> um, oh. 
so it's quite a hard thing to get and I think also my husband and I you know my husband's sort of very very sweet thing when he wasn't quite there I'm maybe talking about like round five or six in terms of moving on and he was just said you know you know but I married you you know the, the, the kind of idyllic dream of making a little person that's both of you is mm -hmm. is kind of gone and then he was like but that's more about you know a bit of his own self-esteem than it was about anything else so I was like well they're gonna look like you anyway you know I was trying to be kind of like mm -hmm. hard about it mm -hmm. um and he was like yeah I know but I'd rather they look like you you know it's all that kind of thing um was it a loss for I him to lose the being able to see you in in your child yeah I think so I think mm -hmm. it was and um mm -hmm. but equally I think the thing that we just kept coming back to was but we really want to have a family mm -hmm. and so if this is the path that we need to take to have our family then then that's the way it is you know and I think we're quite kind of not just practical but we're quite kind of um just really positive people as well so I think rather than seeing it as a loss we kind of just saw it as a bonus in terms of but we still get the chance to have a family like this is amazing you know I think that's the way we chose to look at it rather than I mean we accepted it and we felt sad about it but I think after that point we were just like but there's so many things to be thankful for mm. and so many opportunities to be thankful for, then we should just push on. And was pregnancy something you really wanted to experience? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it really was, you know, and we actually asked our consultants like, is surrogacy something that we should be considering or, you know, and they were like, no, there's no medical reason why you cannot carry a baby. Mm -hmm. um, so that really isn't an option for you. Like you just, it's you just need to find the right parameters and egg donation is probably it um but yeah I really I wanted to be pregnant you know all my friends have been pregnant I thought like you know I just and I and it was important for me to be able to grow a baby you know you know people kind of talk to us about oh well you just you know that just adopt mm -hmm. I was like mm, it, it can be the right decision for some people and not for others and I mm -hmm. think for us it it potentially wasn't an option for us. Um, I think just because I want, I wanted that physical bond with my baby. I wanted to carry that baby and make that baby. And um, so, yeah, I think it. I think being pregnant was definitely part of it. But I think more than anything, it was just wanting to be a mum. You know, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, I've never asked before. Is adoption very common in the UK? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, it's, as I'm sure it is in the States, it's hugely complicated and it's not an easy process to get down. It takes a long time. No, no, it's not easy. There's nothing easy about adoption. No, as sure. you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about, um, um, what about open adoption? Is that common in the UK as it is in the States? I don't know, to okay. be honest. I don't know enough about it. Um, okay. I don't think it's as common, actually. I, I rarely hear, I rarely hear about it. Um, Okay. So it's more yeah. and unidentified. The the parents yeah. the parents and the parents don't know each other. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think over time, um, you know, there is a relationship with the birth parent if it's mm -hmm. suitable, because obviously a lot of adoptions are made through 
unfortunate circumstances. Yes. Um, so yeah, but I'm not actually sure how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's like you mentioned being pregnant and being able to, to have that, um, that experience with in utero where your baby can be, you, you know, what's happening, you know, the environment that, that you're growing the baby under and you can control the foods you eat, you can control the uh, stress level that you have. And we know how impactful that those nine months are for the rest of a person's life. And Mm. so I think that gives people comfort when they've lost infertility causes a loss of control. There's so much we definitely control. And so this is an element that you can have a say in that you can actually eliminate some unknowns. And I think that gives some people peace of mind. And it also raises some feathers for others, um, or ruffles uh, some feathers. <laughs> find two phrases, raises hands and ruffles feathers. For some that, you know, there's, and this is, although this is why this is an interesting topic because there's controversy on both sides, but that people would say, um, you know, that they, that you, still are, you know, having a genetic loss, the child's still losing something genetically, but, um, and that there are babies that need to be adopted. However, in the U.S., there are, um, I believe I just read some stats of the 35 families waiting per one adoption that's available. So, yeah, I I think in the UK, that would be even more, if I'm honest. Yeah, I think the stat would be higher. Uh, obviously just because of population but um mm-hmm. uh i think the other the other i think and i again i don't know for sure so nobody shoot me down if i get this wrong but um i think as i got older as well i i was very conscious because i've had friends that have gone through it is um is once you're over the age of 40 um adopting a baby in the uk is very very uh, hard and is very it, unlikely okay yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And so for older yeah. women and men, it's even harder to adopt after a certain age. So that's something that yeah. many people may not know when they say that, yeah. why, why not just adopt or just adopt? It's like, well, it's, again, it's, it's not easy. And it do, you do have to go through a set of parent t- parenting training, a uh, series of training and information. And there's just, it, it, there, ha- there are special parenting considerations with adoption. And there are, you know, there are with donor conception too. And that's why I wrote the book yeah. that I wrote three yeah, next yeah, baby because, you know, there are special considerations and there are some similarities for sure between the genetic loss that an adopted child feels and the genetic loss that a donor conceived child feels. And there are, yeah. there are distinct differences too. And so those are the differences being that pregnancy um, that you can have carry the pregnancy and you don't have the separation at birth that adopted children have the separation yeah. trauma at birth and that you have in, in many donor conceived cases that you are at least half related to one of your, you know, to your parents. So yeah. you're, you've got that part of your genetic yeah. pieces are there uh, versus a traditional adoption where you may not have any, any genetic relationship at all. So uh, that yeah. kind of, there's, those are the two main differences and there are others too, but uh, we got kind of down that trail of got uh, soundtrack. That. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we can come circle um, back to you. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think the thing that I was going to say was it kind of relates to adoption in terms of, you know, that, as you say about, diff, you know, kind of parental training and, and I love, I've had this conversation with so many people about, well, 
you know, or how are you going to do this? And what are you going to do that? And, and I was, I kind of, my reply is like, it's, it's okay. There is a, there is not a complication, but there's a different factor involved, but essentially it's like being any parent, as I'm sure, as my parents have told me, you know, you learn as you go and you're mm -hmm. always learning and always evolving in terms mm -hmm. of how, and if I'd had my own biological child, there's no guarantee that that child would have grown up to love me and respect me and be, mm -hmm. you know, all of these things and not turn around and hate my guts when they're like 14. Like <laughs> there's just, do you know what I mean? Like I use that as an example. I was like, you just don't know. And mm -hmm. part of, you know, I don't know yet, but when I see it reflected in, you know, my family and my friends' families and, you know, it's, it, it's how, you know, you, you create that and how you nurture that and how you are open about it and talk about, it. you know, I just don't think there's any fixed one way that just because you have a biological child or a donor conceived child that there's, of course there's differences, but in a, in a good way that don't have to be highlighted as, as different in a bad way. Do you know what I mean? In terms well, of what I hear you saying is that it's a dance is what it is. And so it's yeah. basically, when I can think of an example after the child is here and, you know, a teenager is yelling at his father, you're not my real father in the case of sperm mm. donation. And the father says, you know, of course I'm your real father. I've been here every day. I've been parenting you every day and I'm your dad. And you're, you're angry at me because I grounded you, you know, for breaking mm. curfew. And so yeah. you know, you're lashing out at me right now, but it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm your parent. And yeah. after you settle down, let's take a moment to talk about maybe your genetic roots, if you'd like to. I'd love to address that. Not now when you're mad, because you know, let's sort through what you're mad about, about being grounded or what you're mad about with the genetic stuff. I, I want to you know, at least attend to that. Yeah. But let's come back to that. So you don't dismiss it altogether. But you know yeah. that you don't take it too harsh either. You don't take it personally. You know that they're a teenager and they're going to be emotional. Exactly. There's and it's just some, isn't it? The whole I'm, yeah, like unpicking those situations and figuring out exactly as you say, like what is what what's the issue here? You know, it's yeah, deciding what uh, it's an art. You know, it's it's like deciding mm. what is donor conception related. What is genetic differences I think the one thing that I was yeah I think the one thing that I'm kind of interested about and I think I might have messaged you about this before actually is you know we've we've so open about our our journey and and how we're making our family with all of our family and all our friends and the whole <laughs> the whole world of social media um mm -hmm. but I guess it's because I, you know, I speak to really good friends of mine who still don't quite understand how it works, which is hilarious given how long I've been doing it for. Um, but I think I remember asking you, I said, the one thing that I find really interesting is explaining, um, explaining the idea of donor to your friend's kids, because it's not your child and my child's going to be much younger than any of my friend's kids. Um, and, and how, and like, but in a really simple, uncomplicated way that doesn't, that isn't, not because they're, it's not highlighting a difference. It's just making sure that they understand 
the situation, I guess. And what, is, how old are your friend's kids? So, I mean, gosh, some of them are 14. Some of them are 10. I mean, my goddaughter, who's 10 years old, knows that I've been having IVF and that, you know, and now I've went and had an egg date. But I don't know whether she actually knows what that means necessarily. But, you know, my nieces and nephews are all kind of between five and nine. Um, I just find it a really interesting and whether like just an interesting thought basically and I don't know whether you'd come across anything like that or so it depends on their age and you know each stage is so different and how you talk to a child and how they relate to the information I know that my daughter is a teenager and a lot of her friends were following me for a while so poor things probably got an education on what egg donation was <laughs> before their parents realized they did um, but you know I you might be surprised at how many teenagers actually do know what it is now because of their act, their exposure to social media, uh, yeah. you know, about infertility related issues and maybe they don't know exactly how it works, but they can kind of put some things together. So you might be surprised, um, at the younger generation and talking to them maybe just a bit easier than you think, but yeah, that when you're, they're little five and six and seven, eight, nine years old, then it, it is just sort of where you're explaining it the way you would to your own child where yeah. you know, there's, there's differences and we had to have help and we did have to, to, you know, that she has some different genes than me that we don't, yeah. share all of this. we don't share genetics. So, and then when you get into the teenage years, they can, they can understand it more anatomically. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is actually it's, no, it would be no different to how you would explain it to your own yeah. child. Yeah, if yeah. you got into the conversation, if you're that close with your friends and your friends' kids that they are curious and asking, you know, they may feel uncomfortable even talking to you about it, so they may not bring it up. But it, do you, where do you see it coming up? Or how, I should say. Um, uh, I don't know really. I think, I think sometimes in my own head it's because, um, so a lot of my friends' kids will always ask, well, why doesn't Auntie Keely have, why do Auntie Keely and Uncle John not have children? And then the kind of explanation is, well, they are trying, but it's just not happening for them, you know, and it's a bit sad, you know, that's, that's mm -hmm. the kind of standard mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. um, and some of my friends' kids are just like so super cute about it. They're just like, like some, one of them asks, they're like, Auntie Katie, but why did, it's like, even though I've had this conversation with them so many times and they're like, like poking each other, don't ask her, don't ask her. Oh, <laughs> oh how precious is that? It's so cute. I'm like, it's Aww. fine. You can talk to me about anything. What do That's you want wonderful. To know? For you know, you such yeah. a great example of openness about it. You know, that will They're so sweet. Great. And then I'm, yeah. Mm. And I, you know, I explain uh, why we, I was like, well, we are, we are really trying, but unfortunately it's just not happening for us at the moment. So I think it's, I think when they kind of suddenly realize that this might be happening for us, I think some, like, I think my niece and nephew will find it really odd because I think they just assume that like, we just don't have kids. Mm -hmm. Like we just, you know, Auntie Keely and Uncle John are just the fun ones that come around or, you know, like mm -hmm. it's, so I think it's just, I think a shift of, I mean, they'll be totally obsessed. Um, but I think it's just that shift of, you know, knowing that it just hasn't been so, it hasn't been present for so many years. Um, but I think it would just be quite funny for them. Yeah. Like, it's like you had to work so. a long time and you use science to help you and you know you you were able to achieve you were persistent you didn't give up and you were persistent in until you got to have a baby and it, it took it took a lot 
you know, it took some different, uh, it took some different ways to do that. And so that's yeah, where you exactly. can kind of explain it. So, um, yeah, that's very <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then talking about it with a lot of people are more worried about talking about it with their older generation because the older generation, um, it's, you know, newer to them, their minds aren't as, hmm, their minds out aren't as agile anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, that's you know, a very do, good way of putting it. <laughs> we, get, we get fixed in our beliefs the older we get. And so um, that can be more difficult for people is talking to the older generation and explaining the science or explaining technology. And then, you know, that just can open up a whole can of worms, but uh, that'll be for another episode, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> specific concern, but I love how you brought up the, the younger talking to younger kids. So that's, that's really helpful. Um, yeah. And so let's, if we can just wrap up by talking about the, any advice you would give to women who are, who like you living it up, loving their life, having a great time in their late twenties, early thirties, mid thirties, and, um, mm. any advice you might have for them. I think if I was going to go back now, um, I wouldn't have changed anything that I did in terms of meeting my husband and waiting for that. But I think I probably definitely would have just figured out where I was personally in terms of my fertility, um, in terms of my fertility, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think just arming yourself with that information is really powerful. And then, and I don't think there's been a a big push in the last couple of days here about fertility ed and there's a, a kind of global campaign about education in schools and just trying to educate people more on exactly you know on fertility decline and and all of those things and and it kind of has a mixed response in terms of but then we're pressuring you know kids to get pregnant no we're not pressuring kids to get pregnant we're empowering them with information that they then choose sensibly what to do with you know Mm -hmm. like the the reality is is that the best time to have kids is in your early early to mid 20s that's just a fact so biologically biologically yeah Mm -hmm. um so I just think I would you know I would say if it is something that you are considering in your future at any point doesn't matter what point it is but if that is something that you envision in your future then you know if you're in your mid to late 20s just go and get checked out you don't have to be with somebody you don't have to Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many, especially here in the UK, there are so many, either with your GP or there are, you know, one-stop shops where you can pay a certain amount of money and, and kind of get a basic analysis of your fertility. And I just think it would be really useful and really yeah. important. And I hope that at some point, you know, as again, we're quite lucky here in terms of our, well, at the moment, we're quite lucky here in terms of our National Health Service. Um, you know, you can, you can get all of that information and then it, it's kind of deciding what you do with it. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's a control thing. I think I think for a next generation, I think although you will never have full control over, you know, your fertility destiny, as it were, as because there are no guarantees of anything, I think they'll just be so much more empowered um, to make decisions for them rather than having these decisions sort of forced on you, like periodically. Mm-hmm like oh you're at this stage now well you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to it's just like actually sit back and say okay well this might be part of my plan and or it might not and I think just again and also the education of just you know going into 
just more people knowing about their bodies and 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 women knowing more about their cycles and you know what's normal and what's not normal and and all those conditions that people really suffer with which I'm very lucky touch with that I haven't but that then can become problems in terms of fertility um mm. it's really important to try and get to the bottom of all that stuff so I think it would just be yeah empower yourself and I don't even know. if you're not at that stage in your life just go and get it go and investigate yeah. be curious yeah have you ever heard the marriage song yeah, the it's a u.s song the k-i-s-s-i-n-g yeah so it's um you know what's your husband's name again uh john john so keely and john sitting in a tree k-i-s-s-i-n-g First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. And then it goes on from there. And so yeah. what we really need to do is rewrite the song, you know, and yeah. basically have exactly um, before before Keely and your husband, you know, even meet, it's like yeah. we have to have the uh taking control and take and, and basically um being proactive about your own fertility health. And yeah. Yeah. So it's like, that's, I think you can still have it in that order if that's what you want. You know, obviously that's what you want. all types of different families now, but totally. if you want yeah. it in that order, that's fine. But before that, you can even just take charge of your, your own fertility health. And I think actually nat naturally that will evolve just because of the, you know, even from my generation to the next generation, um, you know, even not millennials anymore, like, you know, I don't even, I can't even remember what they're called now. Um, but uh, Gen Z or something. <laughs> Gen Z. Or what, yeah, exactly. Um, I just think just the way, especially women are behaving um, and, and empowering themselves and, and not necessarily in a feminine, total hardcore feminist way. I just think mm -hmm. they're taking so much more control of their lives and their bodies. And, and I think that will just naturally come. I think it won't even, I think it will just be second, I hope, it would just be second nature to them. Do you want, do you know what I mean? Like that mm -hmm. they're curious about their own body and that they want that, that will just be mm -hmm. a fact of their life. And Absolutely. that's amazing. Whereas I think, you know, my generation, our generation and, and maybe slightly before us in terms of millennial, like it's a bit like between the internet and no internet, you know, it's like- It's true, it's true. It's, we're in a total limbo mm -hmm. period where you're kind of on the cusp of both and you kind of mm -hmm. know some stuff and you don't know others. So I'm hoping that will change anyway. But and, and it will change the more people talk about it. I know just one of my younger friends uh, who's a millennial, because she heard, saw she followed my social media account just over the years and saw my posts about fertility, she decided to check into her fertility earlier before she was found her husband and found out she had a tipped uterus. And, you know, she was worried that maybe something it would be harder to get pregnant. Um, and it was slightly harder for her, but but it worked out. Uh, yeah. But it was just good for her to know that. And she felt really yeah. empowered knowing that. She was like, it's so good. I'm so glad I know this now because now I know what to do. And and that really, it, that was very reassuring for me that, that that information was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I had lots of friends when I was at work who were a lot younger than me. Um, you know, they were in their early 20s and they all follow me on Instagram. And mm -hmm. I get so many messages from them now just saying, mm -hmm. you know, I just wouldn't have ever considered thinking about this and you really opened up my eyes and mm -hmm. like it's not for me right now but I know it's something that I have to that I do have to consider and yes. that 
you talking about it has really helped me, which is really sweet. And it is. I'm like, glad you're the generation that needs to be thinking about it. That's right. It's exactly right. Yeah. So well, wonderful. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. And um, I know we'll st- continue to stay in touch on Instagram. So definitely. Thank Very you, Gemma. Absolutely. Have a great day. And you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow me for more content, you can find me on Instagram at Jana Rupnow LPC and Facebook. And you can also grab a copy of my book, Three Makes Baby, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Target.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it and share it with a friend if you like it. Have a great day.